Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. My call to confession comes from Proverbs 26, verse 8. Like one who binds a stone in a sling is he who gives honor to a fool. Verse 1 of this chapter told us that like snow in summer and rain in harvest, honor is not fitting for a fool. Here we see that it is dangerous to give honor to a fool. Binding a stone in a sling can either mean tying it in so that when you swing the sling and let it go, it won't release as it's supposed to. And that's dangerous because it could swing back and hit the thrower. Or it can mean the, the placing of the stone in a sling's pocket, as in loading your gun and cocking the hammer. Given the context, this is also a dangerous proposition. Nobody wants a fool running around with a loaded and cocked gun. That's how people get hurt. And that's the point of this proverb. That's what giving honor to a fool is like. And how does this work? Honor, positions of respect, money, wealth, and power are all instruments of influence. People who have them can affect culture and community. And it works from the top down. It's obvious on the macro level. Presidents can veto legislation and write executive orders. But it works all the way down to the microcosms of our daily lives. When you bestow responsibility upon your children, when you give them authority in an area, in a specific scenario, or over their siblings, you're giving honor, power, and influence to them. And that's where the proverb comes into play. It's that if you don't make sure that that particular child has the maturity and the wisdom to wield the power that you bestow on them faithfully. The results can be disastrous and quickly so. Feelings get hurt, fights erupt, time and resources are wasted because you've cocked the gun and handed it over and you're culpable. You haven't discerned that that child was ready for that responsibility. So I've used the example of presidents and children, but this applies to all sorts of communities, church communities. And in fact, that's why we have rigorous um, training in place for, for the obtaining of office in the church, is because you're bestowing honor and responsibility on men when they become deacons or elders. This kind of thing can happen officially and unofficially. It happens in office politics, it happens in work, it happens in school, in community organizations. Anywhere people live in community, this is an issue, discerning whether people are worthy of honor. We're called to exercise wisdom in bestowing honor, and the corollary is that we are called to exercise wisdom in bearing honor. Where we have responsibilities, 
where we have wealth or power or honor, we must not take them lightly or abuse them. They're great blessings, but they are also dangerous tools that can do great damage to others. And here's where we're called to consider our own shortcomings. We are all sinners, and we all have our own stumbling blocks, our pet sins, or what you might call our folly specialties. These are the ways that we fail, the ways that we fall short. They're the battles that we fight. But today we're reminded of the damage we do to others because of our foolishness, our own foolishness. God has given all of us talents. Every one of us have responsibilities. We're all held accountable for how we invest them and what we do with them. We're all walking around with loaded guns, and we have all failed in some way. The only way forward is repentance and forgiveness. So have you hurt your wife or your husband or your children? Have you taken advantage of a co-worker? Has your sin interfered with your peace with your brother or sister sitting across the aisle or in the pew next to you? If so, confess it and repent. Own it and turn from it. Because the fruit of the gospel is life. A community identified by its sacrificial, selfless love. As Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel. Struggle and coast. 
In all of this constant change, we are sometimes sure, and other times bewildered. Sometimes strong, and other times broken. God never promised us an easy road. Life on the earth is a struggle. We are here, and we are broken. We are imperfect. We fail, and we suffer the consequences. Others fail, and we suffer the consequences of that, too. We have enemies, and we have trials. We have sickness, and no one moves on to the final rest without passing through death. One of our greatest enemies, our, our greatest enemy. God never promised us an easy road or a gilded path. But he gave us the answer to our problems. He intervened in the middle of history and he gives us hope. He promised us his presence. He's here with us. He promised us eternal life, a destination, heaven. He's, Jesus is preparing, he has a mansion filled with rooms. He's preparing a place for us. He's promised us his Holy Spirit. That sanctifying spirit that gives us life and breath, that opens our eyes to the truths of Scripture and the truths of our God, that reveals all things to us. But we need the grace and peace and the stability of faith in order to move forward. With all the change we see around us and we experience and we feel, and with all the uncertainty, God is steady. God is sure. God is constant. God is absolute. And one of the greatest revelations that we have of this is his law. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The Bible says that Heaven and earth shall pass away, but not one jot or one tittle of the, of the law will pass away until all things are fulfilled. God's revealed will and purpose is certain and steady, something we can bank on. And all of the ups and downs in history serve the purpose of revealing God's story. In the law, in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, God reveals both who he is and what he is like, as well as what he wants from us. He defines what truth is. He defines what reality is. And he defines what love is. Is. And this is very important. We think we know what love is, but we need to learn from God what it is. We need to have an outside source to tell us what love is, what truth is. Because in and of ourselves, our hearts are fallen. We're broken. Our reasoning is cracked. We are shifty. 
We can't define anything based on ourselves or on our own terms because outside of God and His revelation in the Scriptures and in history, everything is relative. And as soon as you make truth relative, as soon as you make morality relative, as soon as you make goodness relative, you make them unknowable and unattainable. There is no truth. There is no morality. There is no goodness. Our text this morning is the book of James in chapter 2. And James makes a major shift in our text as he talks about, he starts out talking about the practical ramifications of living in the light of God's revelation. Chapter 1, he says, be patient in trials. Verse 1, verse 2. He says, be patient in trials ultimately because God is good. Verse 17. He says that God is true. Three times he repeats, do not be deceived. In verse 16 and verse 22 and verse 26. He says, God is true. He is good. And then he says that God is making us perfect in verse 4. And the means that he does this is through perfect or pure worship, pure religion, and that's mercy ministry. Verse 27. Because of all of this, practical ramifications of living in the light of God's revelation, James concludes that we must not show partiality. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And that's what we talked about last Sunday. But in verses 8 and 9, James makes the shift that I'm talking about. And he shifts to talking about the law. About keeping the law. About good works and the law. So you'll notice in your bulletins that I've included verses 8 and 9 again for our text today. Our text is James 2, verses 8 through 13. James 2, 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James has gone from all this practical, on the ground, don't show partiality, to the rich, be be equal to everyone. And then he comes down to the doctrinal element. He says, let's look at the law. Let's see what the law has to say about it. And we're given the connection between partiality and the law. And the connection is this. They are diametrically opposed to one another. They're complete opposites. And this is because the law defines for us what love is. He quotes the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is directed at other. Love goes outside of us. The two great commandments of the law with which Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets are love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind which necessarily translates to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the pro- hang on, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
So love God and love your neighbor. And because we have wicked hearts, as soon as Jesus says this, he's challenged. Well then, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan. And there we learn that your neighbor is anybody who is there. Anybody who is there, anybody with a need. It's the man in the ditch. In that, par- in that uh, parable, can you think of any overtones of partiality? I think so. You have a, a Jew, just a stand-up normal citizen. And then you have the high priest. The chief priest comes along. Steps to the other side. For his position of honor, somebody that you respect, somebody you give the nice seat in the church to. Then you have a Levite, one of the scribes, one of the people that, that's highly respected in Jewish society. Steps to the other side, don't want to get defiled. And then you have the despised Samaritan who keeps the royal law. Everybody's capable of this from the ground up, from the lowest echelon of society to the highest. Obey the command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that the Bible doesn't, in the two commandments, the two great, the the two commandments, it doesn't tell us to love ourselves. It assumes that we love ourselves. That's a given. We are all born with a self-interest. We all know what it is to want food, to want shelter, to want other people to love us. We all know that instinctively. We come out of our mothers with that ingrained in our souls. It's natural to love yourself. And that self-love is born out in experience. Talk to a counselor, talk to a pastor, talk to people with problems. You'll find that there's no shortage of self-concern. They might be self-deprecatory, like talking themselves down, thinking they're, they're bad, thinking they're miserable, but notice how their focus is entirely on themselves. They're not thinking about other people. They're not thinking about what they are doing to other people. They're not thinking about what they can do for other people. They're thinking about themselves. They're self-interested. People have no problem focusing on their own stuff. Talk to people in community. Talk to people in, in, in town. People love to talk about themselves and what's going on with them. Not very many people are good listeners. Not very many people are good at hearing what's going on in your life. The hard part is getting through to people and getting them to see outside of themselves, to open their eyes to the big picture, to open their eyes to God, to these two commandments. Now, obeying these commandments doesn't mean that we're supposed to stop loving ourselves. That's never commanded. We're supposed
supposed to humble ourselves before God. That means we're supposed to hear and listen to what He has to say. But that doesn't mean we stop loving ourselves. Jesus says, whoever sacrifices his life for my sake will find it. It's when we start obeying these commandments that we truly are able to start even liking ourselves. We know we're broken. But when you start living for God, when you start accepting his forgiveness by faith through Christ, when you start living for others and loving them, God rewards that. Because you start bearing fruit in your life. And those opposing lists that we get all the time in Paul start looking like the sweet fruit instead of the miserable fruit. That's something to be thankful for, something that you can like. We're not supposed to stop loving ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves. But the point is, is that as you do that, so do to your neighbor. Do you feed yourself? Great. Make sure your neighbor has some food. Do you put your clothes on? Great. Make sure your neighbor can do the same. Visit the sick. Provide shelter. Exercise that pure and undefiled religion. Visit with the intent to help. Remember the judgment and the separation of the sheep and the goats. When Jesus has, he says, when I come into my kingdom, the sheep and the goats will enter and I will judge between them. And he'll separate them, put the, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And what divides them? It's what they've done for other people. It's whether I was hungry and thirsty and you fed me or you didn't feed me. I was naked and you clothed me or you did not. Etc. Mercy in action is what we are judged upon. And that mercy is defined for us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? What is love? Love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, love is peaceable. It's good, it's not angry, not jealous. Love gives the benefit of the doubt to your neighbor. Love hopes all things, love, love endures all things. If we do this, we do well, according to James. This is the royal law and this is good. And this is the law, and it is not something, while it sounds wonderful and sweet and kind to love your neighbor as yourself, the law is hard and does not bend. The law does not change according to our whims. In defining love, the law necessarily defines sin. Well, defines what partiality is. But, and this law has teeth. It convicts sinners of transgression. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, here's the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
It's not a softy law. It's not, it's not an easy law. It's a hard law. And it condemns you if you don't do it. And this is where James gives us some fleshing out of this in verses 10 and 11. And this is important. And that's why I started in 8 and 9 is because he's fleshing that out. Verses 10 and 11, chapter 2. For you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So the royal law is an all-or-nothing proposition. You keep it or you don't. You are either transgressor or not transgressor. You cannot be a little bit transgressor. It doesn't work that way. And this works in the broad spectrum. If you break one commandment over here, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law. If you commit adultery, you've broken the whole law, even if you didn't murder. You murder, you've broken the whole law, even if you didn't commit adultery. So that's different commandments. But it also works within the commandments. From the lesser to the greater. That's the argument of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the argument that James gave us about partiality. Lust is equivalent to breaking the law against adultery. Divorce is equivalent to breaking the law against adultery. Anger is equivalent to breaking the law against murder. And partiality makes you a transgressor. You have become judges with evil thoughts. What this means is that we are all guilty and transgressors. And the Bible says this plainly. No man on earth can say otherwise. There are two Psalms which both open the same way. It's Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Paul quotes those psalms in Romans chapter 3, and later on he concludes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are all sinners. And this really ought to shake us up. It ought to scare us. Because besides raising the bar of righteousness to unattainable heights, the Bible also defines what the penalty for transgressors is. 
Jesus spoke regularly of hell, where their worm does not die and the fire does not go out. It is a lake of fire and brimstone prepared for Satan and his demons and for the damned at the final judgment. And there's no pass on that judgment. Everybody will stand before the Lord of heaven and earth and answer for their lives, for every idle word that was spoken. And we will all be found guilty in and of ourselves. There's only one not transgressor. And that means perfection, and that is Jesus Christ. Because Adam and Eve sinned, because all of their offspring are sinners, all of us are in need of salvation and redemption. And God knew that we couldn't do it, so he gave us a promise right at the very beginning that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He would send a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, as the law put it, in the law of Moses. He would send a prophet, priest, and king like Moses, who would reveal God and his ways to us. He would send Jesus Christ to come down, and Jesus told us himself that he came down to fulfill the law. To make it whole. Jesus was the lawgiver, and he came down and submitted himself to the requirements of it. And he did that in order to define and to show us what love is. The love of God is the salvation of mankind. Where do you find it? You look to the cross. You look to Jesus. At the cross, God shows us where justice and mercy meet. All through the scriptures, God reveals himself as both holy, per holy and perfect, without sin, unable to countenance sin. Any sin in his presence is instantly consumed. Any man who's not redeemed in his presence is instantly consumed. God is holy, and at the same time, the Bible constantly talks of God's mercy and his loving kindness and his goodness and his gentleness towards his people. How can those two be resolved when we are all, as we just found out, sinners? This is the gospel. This is right up the middle, straight up the middle, what the gospel is all about. We are sinners. All of us desperate, uh, desperately in need of God's salvation, and God provides it. That's the good news. Because both God's holiness and his love are satisfied at the cross. At the cross, our sins are paid for because Jesus redeemed us with a substitutionary atonement. At the cross, the love of God was shown to the world because God showed us how much he was willing to pay for our salvation. Yes, we live in a fallen world. 
Yes, it's broken. Yes, it, there's sin. Yes, it's confusing and bewildering and hurts. And it's and it's it sucks. It's bad. But we have hope in the darkness. We have joy in the darkness. We are given the promise of eternal life in the midst of our darkness. And this is why the royal law is also the law of liberty. Verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Because Jesus... Because we've been set free from our sin. Because we know the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. We are commanded to speak and to act as if that was true and real for us. What is this law of liberty? It's the gospel. Jesus is God's revelation of himself. Jesus is the law of liberty. This is why Jesus says the exact same thing about his, himself that he had said about the law at the beginning of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, Sermon on the Mount, he says, what do you say about the law? I said it earlier. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but nothing, nothing here is going to pass away. At the end of his ministry, on the Mount of Olives, shortly before he was crucified... Jesus says, not one of my words will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one of my words will pass away. Jesus is the law of liberty. He is the lawgiver, and he is the law. He is the word from God, and he is the word that God spoke. He's the one who judges, and he's the one who, who was judged on our behalf. And he judges according to his essence and character, perfectly, with all holiness and with all love. Now this is great comfort and hope for Christians. It's a warning. So speak and so do as those who will be judged. That's a warning. But it's also great comfort and great hope for Christians because Jesus both judges and redeems. The one who's bringing the accusations or determining whether the accusation sticks is also the one who paid for that sin. Jesus loves and his love is both merciful and salvific. It's effective love. He pours himself out for us. And in Jesus, we find a new life and new hearts and a new spirit and the ability to actually start walking according to this law of liberty. Genuinely see outside of ourselves. To genuinely love God and sacrifice ourselves for our neighbors. 
but don't take it for granted that this law of liberty does judge. And because of this, we must be faithful to keep the law. Now, this is where James is going. That's his point here. We must be persistent in practicing patience through trials, enduring through hard things. We may not take it for granted because God will judge us for how we live our lives. But how we live our lives is dynamic. Our circumstances are always in flux, like I said at the beginning of the message. God is constant. His gospel, His promises never fall. They never fail. Jesus told us the parable of the sheep and the goats. That when He comes into His kingdom, He's going to judge. And he, tell, and he tells us that what he's going to judge are these two things that James tells us to do. So speak and so do. Words and actions. That's what are judged. But here's the kicker. Our judgment is commensurate with our judgment. Our judgment is commensurate with our judgment. What that means is how we are judged is dependent upon how we judge others. We pray as we, Jesus commanded us to pray. Lord, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And after that, he gives us that prayer, he tells us, because with the measure that you measure, it will be measured against you. With the mercy that you show, you will be shown mercy. We need to have our eyes wide open to the depth of our depravity and sin to understand how great God's mercy is for us so that we will not look down our nose at anybody and show partiality. And here's where he brings mercy and judgment together. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I said just a few minutes ago that the cross is where mercy and justice meet. And here it's pitting judgment against mercy. What is going on? There's animosity between mercy and judgment. It's an either-or. You either show judgment, condemnation, that's what this judgment is. The judgment here is condemnation, and it is just condemnation. condemnation that's spoken of here is condemnation of you. Your own condemnation. We're quick to judge others. We're, we're quick to point the finger at, look at what they did. Don't you understand? Don't you, don't, you, don't you see how I'm hurting because of what they did? We're quick to judge others. We're quick to condemn others. Oh, they're just like that. They can't help it. I'm going to write them off. I don't have room in my life for them. Because look at who they are. Look at what they do. 
If Jesus did that to us, we would all be in a whole mess of trouble. Because that's, that's judgment. That's condemnation. But Jesus, instead of that, shows us mercy. And he requires that we do the same to them. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Do you want the grace of Christ's mercy? Then exhibit his mercy in your life. Be careful how you criticize. Be careful how you condemn. Because Jesus sees our hearts. He knows what we think. He knows how we treat others. And we have to practice a different kind of judgment. And this is the judgment of discernment. And discernment is wisdom. But what wisdom is, is seeing things the way that God sees it. Acting in accordance with the way that God tells us to act. Wisdom is mercy. Because mercy is love. And love is obedience. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the love that you have shown us. We thank you that you have defined the love. We thank you that you have portray the love. We thank you that you have given love and mercy to us, and we pray that that love will be salvific, that it will be effective, that you will change our hearts, that your spirit will be active and vibrant in our lives, that you will teach us to judge one another with grace and with mercy, that we might be a community that is known by our love so that your gospel may not be hindered in our presence, but that it may be proclaimed and propelled to the ends of the earth. Use us mightily for the building of your kingdom. take solace in the constant love of God and His eternal grace. Jesus loved us and He died for us and we remember that and celebrate it every time we celebrate this sacrament. He has provided new life and hope and joy for us despite our trials and burdens. He washes us clean of our sin. He prepares a place for us at His table and He feeds us with His Word and His promises and His Spirit. As you eat and drink, do so in faith, embracing God's revelation of His mercy for you and putting that mercy to practice for your neighbors because the heart of the gospel is that this mercy has gained the upper hand and its fruit is eternal life. This meal, this table is for all who are baptized believers who are under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. By eating and drinking the bread and wine, you acknowledge your sin 
and that you are without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.